This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Charles Hain. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of June 1st, 2023. I am here with Gigi Hawkins. Hello. And Jason Hellerman. Good morning. And we got a couple things today. We've got a little Ask No Film School that's like a follow-up. Before that, we're going to be talking AI and its applications in Hollywood today and where we see it coming in the near future. And on top of all that, Gigi, you've got an interview. Yes, it's a direct follow-up on our episode last week when we talked about international film that has shaken us to our core and changed the way we've seen the world. I got to speak with the director and co-writers and production designer of The Hole in the Fence, and in our conversation, we break down one of the most powerful helicopter scenes I've seen in the world. It's not what you think, and it's a great unpacking of how to convey power in film. So the film's available on VOD now, and you can hear from that team in a bit. Awesome. Very cool. That is awesome. But before we get to that and the interview in the Aspen Film School, first thing we are talking about this week is AI and its actual applications in cinema. There is a lot of hype right now about AI, and we're in a weird stage of the hype cycle where one of the tools of the hype is threats like people who work in the ai industry keep talking about how it could potentially end the world and it's clearly a marketing tool they get to get us to pay attention and i'm not used to that like i'm not used to like i don't know cola companies being like coca-cola we could potentially end all life on earth um but that is definitely like an ai marketing tool right now in a way that is you got to get attention somehow, but that's an odd one. But, you know, we are in a place where we're starting to see, you know, all into the spectrum from David Simon, who is like, I will never let AI touch anything I do in any way, shape or form. Although I have a sneaking suspicion that AI tools have already been used in VFX on shows he's written because the, the line from where AI starts and stops is really tricky. So I think a more nuanced conversation is what we need to have, but it's coming up in screenwriting. It's coming up with the strike. We're going to talk about the strike constantly because the strike is ongoing massive picket lines all over new york yesterday i saw and yeah what what are the tools people are actually putting to use what are the tools that are actually relevant and what are the battles we think are important to strike jason i know you've been doing a lot of research in this space yeah it's so funny i mean i think you know the the perfect answer is like it did feel like we were living in a trailer for the terminator for a while 
You know, just was like, everything's terrifying and and I don't know how to use it. And and I still think like things are scary, right? Just from the front lines of the WGA strike and the worry that, you know, places are going to make you rewrite crappy scripts or, you know, find ways to generate their own IP and then say they own it or whatever. You know, like there's many different questions there. You know, just some backstory with the WGA stuff. In our collective bargaining agreement, there already is provisions where like they can't say AI is original material, right? So like the studio can't come in and be like, our computer wrote this version of Peter Pan and now we want you to punch it up. But there's also many loopholes within there. Just because it says that doesn't mean someone's not going to try it or, you know, they're not going to be like, well, I'm, I'm the author of it, you know, things like that. So obviously there's many different nuanced takes of like why we're out there and what's going on. And I think the WG has a pretty good explainer on their website. But the more I think about AI, the more I am like, is this a tool I would use? You know, the David Simon thing, like I'd rather put a gun in my mouth <laughs> than use AI to come up with transitions between scenes, I think is is fair, right? Like there is some part of writing that should feel like human magic and put together. But I also think like, okay, like, well, I don't want to miss out on a tool that other people are going to try or other people are going to use. So I've tried to make myself a little bit more open in the past coming weeks just to say like, okay, like what is something I might use? What is a different way to look at something, you know? And, and I don't know, you know, like I, I think we've all played with chat GPT at this point, right? Where they're on four or 4.5, I think, you know, typing in like, oh, write a scene in the voice of Quentin Tarantino or like come up with a way, you know, a backstory for whatever character. And I think it spits out a lot of stuff that's interesting, but at the same time, it almost feels like, like the staff writer you don't need, you know, just like someone coming up with a lot of ideas that you'd never credit that maybe get you in the conversation. I feel really bad for saying staff writer, but you know, <laughs> many apologies, but you know, it feels like, I mean, someone... you have been a staff writer, so you get to use that term, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like, if it's, you uh... haven't been, you don't, but you were <laughs> yeah, right. permission. Exactly. So just coming up with, you know, someone to just help the ideas start churning to go forward and, I don't know. You know, I tried to play with it this past week just to say, like, OK, like, let's get better. And and I think, you know, I got better at asking it questions, but I don't know if it got better at turning me into a better storyteller. A lot of times, like I would then go down a rabbit hole, like anyone who's been in a writer's room can attest to like someone brings up a topic. Someone's like, I have a story about that. And suddenly you're like knee deep in a Wikipedia search. You know, like that was mm-hmm. my experience with it was like, oh, I want to know how, you know, mid-level marketing works like pyramid schemes in the suburbs. And then suddenly I was asking it like, well, how much money could you make? You know what I mean? Like, uh, exactly. Asking for yeah. a friend. Yeah. Yeah. Totally for this one throwaway line to figure out how this works. So it is interesting. And I think like most of the practical applications we see now are, are usually software or editing. A big thing that went viral on Twitter that I'm sure you both saw was this idea of expanding the frame. You find the exact name of the the program that does it. But uh, the the clip that went viral is from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. It's the very opening of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And it's uh, basically I, the idea that when AI sees a frame of a movie frame, what you can do is program it to expand that frame. So like, hey, if I shot this in 3, 4, you know, and it, let's say it decides to estimate what would, what would this look like in, you know, like whatever, like one... Or, you know, I don't know all the aspect ratios off the top of my head. Two, two to three, five. Yes, two, three, five. Exactly. So we continue to expand the frame. And, you know, people are saying like, oh, isn't this interesting? And doesn't this make all the stuff cool? And I think like, yeah, and in a GIF form, it makes it cool. But I don't know if I would want AI feeling it. It's called generative fill. And it's a feature of Photoshop that's in beta right now. So we'll take an iconic image that you put in from film and TV and it will 
you know, very realistically, I can say this with air quotes because you'd have to look online to decide if you think they're realistic. I think some of them just look like someone painted it in. We'll expand the frame to as as big as you want. It'll add some sort of lighting and texture for you. And and I thought like, hey, like that's interesting. You know, maybe that's a cool thing. Gigi, I know. I don't know if you've played around with that or. Well, it it sounds like a tool, but it sounds like it's tiptoeing into the fix it and post territory, which is very dangerous as filmmakers. Uh, and and if you're relying too heavily on that, then it will impact your filmmaking. So I think I think the key takeaway that I'm getting from this conversation is AI is a tool. And this is reiterating, I think, sage advice that Charles gave us last year. But it really feels like it needs to be a tool and something that helps with process, but there needs to be a way to protect these different stages. So I do like that the WGA is including the fact that original, an an idea can't originate from AI. And I wonder how we monitor that. I know that there's, there's talk about requiring essentially a watermark on images that are generated by AI. There's a really interesting op-ed in The Atlantic from Jonathan Haidt and Eric Schmidt that came out a couple weeks ago that was more speaking to the urgency of AI and how it impacts social media. So it feels like a lot of attention needs to be paid there. But I do think that there are learnings we can take, apply from the film industry. And I too have played around with ChatGPT in the context of writing. And and for me, especially because I am a, I, I do generally write alone. I, I'm not part of a writing team. It felt like an interesting way to have uh, a framework to have more controlled, essentially, Wikipedia and or research-based yeah. questions or queries. And and I found myself asking for outlines and breakdowns of movies. And that was really helpful just to sort of get the engine going in my brain. The question for me is how much will that evolve and also will there will it start to at least sound more i think it's really good at sounding cool to a like a cool staff writer <laughs> to a certain extent but like how do we sort of draw a line and and protect you know the creators themselves yeah well i mean the one the beauty of unions right the union fighting it but two i also think it's important to remember like what you're talking about with content aware fill and generative fill still is something if you've been using content aware fill in photoshop you're, you you have to babysit it, right? Like I've gotten good at knowing what area of the image to select as a source for content aware fail when I want to erase a line in a photo or whatever. And like, you know, if you're going to go back in the good, the bad and the ugly, someone's going to have to sit there and monitor all of the generative fill so that there's not a scene where like Photoshop doesn't make like a skyscraper or something in the background yeah. because Photoshop is like, well, this is clearly shot in Spain. And I know that there's a I know that there's buildings there now. And I think the same thing is true with ChatGPT. I mean, I think of ChatGPT and all of the text tools I've used as like giant cliche machines. And like, we have those right now. Like beginning writers are giant cliche machines. If you've ever worked around like students or people just starting out, yeah. like it's, and it's, and, it, and it's a perfectly all right part of the process. And you shouldn't feel bad about yourself if your early work is like, regurgitating the things you love because that is how we start to do the thing we do. But the question I have is, is it possible the leap that happens when you watch someone grow past cliches and start actually writing, start actually like having new things and watching new things occur. And like when you watch a writer, like 
there's nothing like when you've got a friend who's a writer and like they write that new thing where you're like, oh, yes. motherfucker, like where the fuck did that come from? Like, holy yeah. shit, like you you cracked a new thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't see language models doing that leap anytime soon. I can't picture it where all of a sudden Clippy is going to be like, ah, oh, let me drop this new thing on you. Because even like I've done some of those things like imitating Tarantino's voice for fun or whatever. And like, largely they're riffing on one particular, like, ter- you know, it, they all sound sort of like Reservoir Dogs Pulp Fiction. And I'm like, Absolutely. I gotta be honest, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood sounds very little like those movies. Like he has continued to grow as a creative artist and, and struggle with new things. And the thing that makes me love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so much is not like just the language. The language is obviously part of Tarantino, but like the sense of deep longing about a passing in time, the sense of like regret about paths not taken, the sense of like all of that shit is the thing that makes us love movies. And like, I can't see a language model, which is just a like very sophisticated cliche generator getting there. I do think it's a fun research tool. I think like among all of our research tools, I, I know somebody who's writing something in a field he doesn't know very well professionally. And he's like, oh, I'm having ChatGPT like make up scenes in that field for me. I'm not going to use any of them, but they're interesting for me to like get to know agricultural technology in a way that it it feels more conversational than just reading a Wikipedia page. Yeah. But on the flip side, that Wikipedia page is vetted by a lot of human beings. Whereas, like, is his script going to have some wild agricultural technology stuff in it that's not true? ChatGPG just thought it sounded true. I don't know. Are there, yeah, like, floating machines that harvest now? <laughs> that's always a big thing. I think, you know, just in doing some research and talking to friends who are college professors, who have people turning in papers and, and whatnot, you know, it's hard for them to track. But also, it was like the way we track is just if you put a quote in your paper, like let's say you're like Abraham Lincoln said, blah, blah, blah. It's like chat GPT is making a lot of those quotes up. So if I can't find immediately Googling your quote where it is, like I, it's a pretty big red flag that maybe it didn't come from a human being it came from a computer. Like if you put in, you know, Hey, what are the, the 10 best Steven Spielberg pieces of advice for you? It will come up with 10 awesome quotes. None of them, were said by Spielberg. I mean, I, that's my experience. I was playing with the other day, just like putting it in and, and it doesn't have to be like, you know, whatever. You don't have to put an obscure filmmaker in there. It's like some people with very famous quotes, it won't even regurgitate them back because what it does instead is just say, decide like, oh, here's some interviews with these people and I'll just put some phrases together that sound like things. It's very interesting. I, I don't know if it's ever going to get better. And I think the idea of a friend that gets better, shout out to my friend, Sean, whose script I read this weekend is amazing. I, I told him, I thought represented a big step. Go Sean, but, Congrats. Uh, you know, but like that feeling is awesome to, to read something that feels electric and better. And I don't think we've felt that yet with AI. And I don't, I don't think we will say, so think at the end of the day, you're right, Charles, it's just a regurgitation machine. And I'd say like the best part about film TV is like the good stuff is really good, but there's so much bad stuff. And if you're mixing it all together to regurgitate back to us some sort of form, it's it's I don't think it has a possibility to be good or even great at that point. You know, and there's also a lot of regurgitation happening in Hollywood. Literally all IP is regurgitating. What a word. But I I went and saw The Little Mermaid this weekend by myself in theater. So I was the creepy adult surrounded by children. But it was really fun to see it with kids. (laughs) Were you going to say something, Charles? I was going to say that is one of the places where that like 
obviously we're in a deeply misogynistic society and there's very few privileges women have that men don't have. But one of the privileges is you are way less creepy being in a movie theater alone, watching a kid's movie than a man would ever be. I felt I did feel safe and I felt like I was I hung in the back and I didn't engage. But it was very fun to see, like, you know, the energy in the room. But I did. And I think that it was a fun movie. I again, it's more fun to see with kids because their reactions were part of the fun. But there was something very like stunted about it in terms of. It was mimicking the animated film that I grew up with, but it was trying to do it in this like almost too grounded way where I'm like, okay, we're looking at these beautiful seascapes. But I also grew up watching Finding Nemo and I I wanted it to feel alive. And it was just funny to muse on how it was this regurgitation of something and then kind of like a tamped down version of it. And, and, you know, it feels like if we can't nail the most, you know, a, a story that it has been, you know, ingested into our cultural psyche so well and comes with so much love and adoration. If we can't nail the energy of that with millions of dollars and like incredible teams behind it, then I don't think an AI will be able to nail that as well. So that gives me hope. Yeah. It's interesting. Like we, we talk about these tools and then I think you can talk full circle and come back into exactly what we set up front. Right. Which is like the tool should be used by a human being. Cause at the end of the day, if the, the goal is human connection between someone watching at home, between kids in a theater, between Gigi and a bunch of kids in a theater, if, you know, if that's the, the goal is that sort of connection. You need someone wielding that tool. Like I don't think there's an intuitive application for it. You know, that's, that's always the thing they say, right? This is an intuitive software. It'll know what you want it to do. But frequently, I surprise myself with my my wants and and different things. You know, and I think like you can't. It's it's tough. It, it might just be feeding the audience something. I think intuitive a lot of times will feel safe. It takes me back to like when Spielberg re released ET, but he took out the guns and put in flashlights, and suddenly it was just you're like I don't I can't really explain why. But it's just like, A, it looks fake. And B, like the danger of being a kid and feeling like the government's chasing you is way less dangerous if they're just guys with flashlights. And, you know, I think he admitted that was a mistake, went back and redid it. But that to me felt like, you know, if we were going to talk about like an intuitive AI change, or like, oh, this is a PG movie. We should flip this around. It's like, oh, no, some of that is like, like a kid's movie should feel a little dangerous. You know, like when you're a kid, you do want to feel like it's like on the side of adulthood that doesn't make you feel young, but also still makes you feel safe, you know, and. I think that stuff's pretty interesting. And again, so, like that's a human emotion, not a. So yeah, I'm going to go out on the other side of the limb. I'm still very suspicious of AI in general, but if anybody saw this recent, if anybody didn't see this, you should check it out recently. TikTok rolled out a new automatic filter for faces. And if you haven't watched the before and after videos, you should watch them because they're terrifying because, you know, and we're getting like one of the videos was made by someone who's like, I'm a photographer and this video is ruining my business because people come to me and they are used to shooting selfies with TikTok where they look like this. And then I take photos of them that look like them and they are mad at me. It's a, it's a fascinating video, but it's called the teenage filter. They fully admit it's driven by machine learning algorithms. So it counts under AI. And I tell you what, I'm on the short list of people that thought there was interesting stuff in the Irishman. But this TikTok filter, which is real time, is better VFX than there were in The Irishman. And I'm not mm. denigrating any of the people who did the VFX on The Irishman. They did the, the best job they possibly could with the technology they had at the moment. But that thing in TikTok is legit better for shaving Absolutely. 20 years off people in a way that, like, 
is terrifying in social media, but also a fascinating filmmaking tool. Like how many times have like, I was already thinking about projects where I was like, oh, you know, I know someone who'd be great at this part, but slightly too old. And yeah. do I then shave it off with this? Like, yeah. and it is a, like, it's fascinating. It's amazing. The possibilities are endless. Just going off the TikTok thing, Charles, I saw one. And if you've seen Move AI, do you know what this is? It's yeah. basically like, in, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't presume that you have a motion capture suit at home. I do not. But the idea with Move AI is like, we could, you know, uh, you know, esteemed director Gigi Hawkins could shoot me bouncing around, jumping around and then, you know, replace me with an orangutan or whatever without needing me to wear a motion capture suit. And you could do it, you know, shooting on your phone doesn't have to be like a high quality thing. And is it amazing? No, but it's pretty cool that you can do it. And I think we talk about no film school and like the purpose for us existing. You know, it's like, hey, we all want to get together. We want to, you know, democratize filmmaking for people all over the world and just seeing what like honestly, like kids and their iPhones can do with just like a simple application. I'm like, oh, this is getting better. You know, like it, yeah. we will be seeing stuff that I think was untouchable. I don't, a few years ago, we had those kids in Nigeria who were making those sci-fi films, like their own version oh, of yeah. like sort of the Marvel stuff. And I was like, oh, like these tools in their hands, like these sort of younger creative minds with thing outside the box. Like it makes me excited for that. You know, like I can put the, Terminator worry behind my back, you know, and like not think about it. I'm like, oh, I want to see what these kids are doing. Yeah. And like, what, who's going to tap into this? Especially oh just because filmmaking was so inaccessible for a while. Like these special effects were crazy. I mean, how many indie movies did we grow up? You know, like I'll just pull Clerks is the most obvious one where Kevin Smith was like, I have a convenience store at night and I can afford black and white film. And this is what I can do. You know, like, and then you think about that and you know, switching hands is like, I have all these AI things. I can make a superhero movie. You know, it, it's pretty interesting. Charles, well, you're also, a teacher of kids. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it's funny to watch mocap in specific change. Cause like when I started working at the school where I work, we had budgeted to buy, to build a mocap studio and it was going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we kept dragging our feet and kept dragging our feet. Cause we we're like, the prices keep coming down. The prices keep coming down. And there were other resources that needed to be spent on. And we were like, all right, we'll get to a mocap suit. And then those suits came out and those suits were five grand a piece. So we bought four of the suits and that became our mocap solution for the last four years. And we've used it a ton and we've used it in VFX classes and we still have those suits. And I guarantee you, we're still going to use because they have more fidelity than Move AI. Hmm. But Move AI is all of a sudden out. And what Move AI lets you do five years ago was hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we've actually done two articles on the suits for No Film School because the Rococo guys are so cool. And it is interesting to think about the extent to which Clerks is a really good example. The indie film aesthetic and indie film content was driven by available resources. And so we had this like indie film, art film thing of like, it's about... It's about different kind of people than we see in Hollywood movies and they're living different kind of lives. And that was driven largely by the aesthetics you had access to. And, you know, I, I have a convenience store and a couple of friends who have a trench coat. And it is interesting to think about this generation that comes up where it is a different universe. I remember this interview I saw with Coppola in the 90s and I'm quoting him here and it speaks to his body image baggage where he was like, and some fat little girl in Ohio is going to be able to make a movie with a digital camera. And like. Don't know that that was relevant, but I'm going to try and quote him accurately so that ChatGPT can then quote him accurately later. And show uh, who he really is. <laughs> well, I mean, he also has always struggled with his own weight. And in interviews, he's now lost the weight and he talks about it a lot. I think he's still processing, you know, we shouldn't talk about other people's bodies. It's, it's a lesson I work on with my daughter all the time. But it is interesting to think about the next generation of the people who he, I think he specifically said, I think he specifically commented on the body there to talk about people who don't have access to power. 
And like in Ohio, being a woman, being overweight, like these are all things that prevent barriers to power. And so I think that was the point of the example he gave. And they can now tell stories with digital tools. And I think we're now entering a phase where with these AI tools, legitimately even more people will be able to make interesting superhero movies. Now, they won't have access to IP. You won't be able to go out and make a Batman movie, even if you have Move AI giving you amazing effects. But you can create a new superhero IP of your own or find a publicly licensed one. So it is interesting to think about the iterations of who has access to that tech as it becomes cheaper and more available. Gigi? I love that you point on the I, the the history of indie film and and ac- the access that it gives and how it will allow filmmakers who may not have had the same opportunities, but also stories and perspectives that may not have had the same opportunities to be told. And so this idea of a indie superhero movie told from a perspective that we haven't seen. It almost feels like a an opposite of the sort of like mediocre human regurgitation that, you know, we see in Marvel movies. And so that is exciting. That is si- exciting and it's something that I have not considered. And and frankly, like I I I stay away from a lot of those big budget studio movies because I know that it is trying to cater to too many audiences and it just puts me to sleep. Like I, I fell asleep in Superman versus Batman. I fell asleep and I fall asleep in these large action movies when they're blasting sound at me. So I'm really excited to see what the indie version of it and what the story that is true to that perspective is. Well, and hopefully it creates a more interesting form of competition where other voices are able to come in and and do something that wouldn't be done otherwise. And we'll watch more people sort of, you know, the cliche 90s indie feature will maybe be a cliche 2030s indie feature. And the cliche 2030s indie feature will probably look much different because of the technology that enables. I suspect you will still be writing something by scratch and casting humans. Mm-hmm. but. You might be just shooting those humans in your backyard and then doing everything else with AI to put them somewhere else. And that might be where we are headed. And that in and of itself is interesting. I like the idea. I mean, I'm going to wrap with this. The the cliche has always been like, never do a period romance, right? Because like period movies cost so much money and yada, yada. And I love the idea that in 2030, we could have an indie period romance where because the performances in script are good enough and the period cost us no money because of AI we get something that would have been unfinanceable to the point where it was the running joke in the get shorty TV show, but maybe it's a script that's worth doing and AI enables it to be like, you can just shoot on the street in New York and replace all the cars on the street with thirties cars with a button. Like that's interesting from a creative standpoint when we think about making movies. Absolutely. I guess maybe you will be okay. (laughs) I mean, time will tell time will tell. (laughs) So we have a great Aston film school, Jason. Yeah, so from Dominic G. Dominic listens to the podcast, found me on Instagram, which I absolutely love, and sent me this question. He said, this is pretty ridiculous, but I was listening to the podcast, and I don't remember which episode, but someone mentioned a film term that pretty much was similar to saying, don't put the cart before the horse. Basically, don't do anything because things are constantly changing. Do you know what the quote is? And of course, you know, we, we tried to determine who it was. I'm pretty sure we think it's a Charles quote, and, you know... We have your answer, Dominic G. Or we have a way to answer you no matter what. We don't have your answer. We're going to the audience of fellow listeners. I don't remember what I said. If it was me, like, I talk all the time about the importance of making the decision at the right time. Like, you don't Mm -hmm. want to back yourself into a corner and make decisions too early, and you don't want to make them too late. The biggest skill of a 
working professional is knowing when you have to make a decision. Because if you delay too long, all sorts of other stuff falls apart. But if you make it too early, you lock yourself in needlessly. And like, that was one of the things I learned really early in my career, working with more experienced professionals is watching when they made a decision. And, you know, cause I'm maybe a little on the anxious side and we want to lock things down really early. And like, I need to, you know, I remember I was locking down locations for my thesis nine months early, which was great. And I'm glad I did it, but not always necessary. And, but also locking in locations for your thesis the day before shooting is a problem. So when to make it, but I don't have a good film slangy, like don't put the dolly before the grip. I don't, I don't have one. I uh, don't like put that. the grip before the dolly. I don't, I don't know. I, I like that. We'll, we'll workshop it. And I also am so glad that, that Dominic brought this up because I, this is some of the best advice that I've gotten on this podcast. And it's something that I too, as an anxious person, and especially when you're learning, you are like, I want to do everything I can before it happens. And of course you want to, in production, be as prepared and think through every possible scenario. So it's really hard to restrain yourself this way. But it also saves a lot of energy in the long run. So not just putting out and making decisions for the sake of making decisions as a crutch. So living in that gray area, it's scary, but sometimes it's absolutely necessary. There's an interview with Jonah Haley's on a late night show. I can't remember if it's like Seth Meyers or whoever. And they say, well, what's the difference between working with Martin Scorsese and working with any other director? You know, like what makes Martin Scorsese Martin Scorsese? And Jonah Hill said, in every movie you shoot, something's going to go wrong on set, right? Doesn't matter what. We can't put the camera here. We can't dolly backwards. We can't whatever, you know, like something will inevitably go wrong. Martin Scorsese makes a decision for what to do next much faster than every other director. And he said he doesn't always know it's right, but he has a backup plan. You know, he has something thought out of like what to do next. And, and for him, that was like, you know, other directors are worried or doing whatever. He just makes a decision and goes with it. And he's like, oh, I'll be confident with it. And if it doesn't work, we'll find a way around that later, you know? And, and I think that's something I've always thought about in writing. And as I delve into the other filmmaking crafts, you know, making those decisions, clearly knowing why you made that decision, but always knowing that, you know, we're in such an arm form that's free that like, or freeing that like later you can make another decision that fixes or changes or gets even rid of that scene. Like, you know, don't be so stuck in, in one way to do stuff, you know, keep, be okay making the decision to do something different the day of and then not worrying about it, you know, whatever. So, like, you know, make those decisions. Go bravely, you know, shoot bravely. Do all that stuff, you know. I think it, hopefully that comes back and hopefully that answers Dominic. And we'll try to get the listener, if they remember, right in. We'll highlight you and, you know, give you a shout out if you can remember the exact turn of phrase. Hi again. This is Gigi, and I am about to interview director Joaquin Del Paso and his co-writer Lucy Paula, who is also the production designer on my favorite film of the year, The Hole in the Fence. The Hole in the Fence takes place at this secluded, exclusive summer camp in the Mexican countryside under the watchful eyes of these adult guardians, where these boys from these prestigious private schools receive physical, moral, and religious training to turn themselves into tomorrow's elite. The discovery of this hole in offense sets to, into motion a chain of events that are pretty disturbing, and the boys devolve into this like Lord of the Flies like mob mentality that creates this spread of hysteria in this 
again, very disturbing coming-of-age drama that unravels like a horror film while drawing on actual events. The score in this movie is by Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein of Stranger Things, and the performances are unmatched. Watch it for its cinematography. The execution of these oneers is next level, and in our conversation with Joaquin and Lucy, we talk about how they pulled this off. So here's my interview. Hello, my name is Joaquin Del Paso. I'm the director and co-writer of The Hole in the Fence. Thank you so much for being here. And are you calling in from Cannes, the ground of... No. <laughs> I'm in Sicily, in Italy at the moment. I just uh, visiting some friends, but I was in Cannes, the, the, the home of cinema. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank yeah, you so yes. much for being here. Thank you. No, thank you. And hi... My name is Lucy Pavlak, and I'm the co-writer and also the production designer for The Hole in the Fence. And I'm calling from Mexico City, where I live. I'm from London. This is such a wonderfully geographically diverse call. I love it. (laughs) And I love the film, shook me to my core. And I appreciate you both being on here. I'd love to hear how you two came up with the idea for the film and what the process of figuring out the story was. Joaquin? Okay, so the, the, the film is inspired in one specific year in my life when I was transitioning from one school to other, and I ended up in a Catholic school, a little bit like the one in the film, only for boys. And, and very quickly, I realized that these were not any, not just typical uh, boys, but like, a children of very wealthy families, some of them, and you know, like they had very different background to what I was used to. And this was a very important year in my life. I was uh, becoming a teenager, and I was basically uh, learning, you know, uh, how to live in this world. And it was a very tough introduction. <laughs> and so, I many years later, I, I I realized that many things that had happened during that year, including a camp like an integration camp that we had gone to, like there were a lot of really weird things uh, that had happened. And I started reading online about actually real cases of, of like during these camps, like really bad stuff happening involving like abuse and a lot of uh, psychological manipulation and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of oppression. And I, I kind of, it kind of confirmed what I felt that time. So I, appre- I approached Lucy and I told her all this story and we both agreed that it was very rich uh, story-wise and character-wise. And, and we realized that that it had a lot of material to make a, a very interesting film about a, more than a story, about a feeling, about a feeling that these boys have during the film. Yeah. And from my part, well, so Joaquin invited me on board and we've worked previously co-writing Naria Panamericana. And, and so I was overjoyed and the project fascinated me in terms of my personal experience. I did when I was 11, I did go to boarding school for a while. So I had some experience of what happens when, <laughs> when children are left to the like 
yeah, without their parents around and the, the different kinds of scenarios that unfold. And then, yeah, well, like we started looking into like, I don't know, the history of manipulation of youth in summer camps, for example, and and building on this idea of the creating the conditions for exploring the flaws in the education system for the, the, the elite in Mexico. And I mean, it applies to the rest of the world too, I think. Absolutely. It, even though it's a very specific story, specific to Mexico, it's still universal because you're able to access these themes that are so compelling and disturbing. And, and clearly we've all had our, our own personal experiences of people exploiting within these systems. So yeah, I mean, it's as, as for our listeners, the film is now available to stream. So I recommend as soon as you finish turning it off and going to turning out the lights and watching this film. Now, one of the things that was really, there was a scene in particular that I think captured the essence of the film so well. And this is the scene where the parents come in to collect one of their kids via helicopter. And it's such an interesting scene of power dynamics. And I'd love for you to talk about how that scene came to be. And was it something that you always wanted to build something around? Or were you looking specifically for a way to show all the players involved in this world in one place? How did that work? Uh, well, I love that scene because Joaquin is, gives an excellent performance in that scene. And one thing that, well, that he's spoken about and that I think is really powerful within that scene is the fact that, you know, he's the director of the film and he's not allowed to go into the camp. And we see some, you know, we see the level of power or well, who are these parents? We also see like the fact that, that, that in spite of their power, they're kept at arm's length and they can't enter into this process of manipulation. So I, yeah, I, I, it's 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 such an important scene in the film, and yeah, I agree. Well, I, I yeah, it it was not the of course the intention is is not that the viewer recognizes that it's the that it's me in the in the film. It, that was just the circumstances that uh, yeah. kind of uh, put <laughs> I actually me there. didn't know it was you. Yeah, <laughs> until now. Ah. <laughs> yeah, that's so that's good, you know, because you didn't. It, it was not meant to be important. It was more meant to be, as Lucy says, that we wanted to create a really uncanny feeling when, you know, like people that obviously have a lot of power, they are even, they are not allowed to get close to the camp. But there was a certain dynamic that happened between the main teacher and me. And there's like this proximity that is, you know, it has been read in many different ways and even like some people are ask me if, if actually the, the the father and the teacher they're kind of making a deal regarding like young boys like kind of mm -hmm. like very obscure and but it was more simple than that we just wanted to create that distance and actually we didn't expect to to shoot it on a helicopter so we we had written the like an alternative scene that happened at the gates with like be like suburb like SUV trucks arriving with security and everything, but luckily we managed to to show the ultimate vehicle of power, Mexico, which is like a government helicopter. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And it's also, I mean, the scene is 
it's so violent and yet so it's so stiff and kind of tight and controlled and I think that, that that's also another reason why it's really it hits very hard the the apologize element it's it sticks with as an audience member it sticks with you for days and and I think that is part of the reason that I'm so glad to be able to speak with you about this because rarely does a film sort of haunt somebody afterwards one this is actually a perfect segue into the idea that you both wore many different hats in the film. You co-wrote the film together. Joaquin, you directed it. But Lucy, you were the production designer. So can you speak about stepping into that role and what that was like having already been so familiar with the material? Um, sure. So for me, I think it's a really natural pathway. And it's surprising that more writers don't, I don't know, end up as also production designers because, you know, the relationship between or how specific objects can demonstrate certain things about each character and, 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 and land, you know, it, 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 it felt so natural to build the world after having been a part of writing it. So I also come from a fine art background and and then within that I've done a lot of kind of installation art and 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 oftentimes it's involved you know, writing writing scripts for the installations and so within that as well it's like it was a natural transition. So in the production of the film can you speak to some of the the world building that you did in establishing who the characters were from a production design perspective so either establishing the dynamics within the boy with the boys or with the characters of the people who are running the camp so well one important thing was the process of looking for the location of the camp actually and that 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 what that was key in in relation to the world building and both Wiki and I went on a number of trips to different kind of high-end children's summer camps and, and following that well we we chanced upon one with a theme of a, a, a kind of Swiss alpine resort which happened to be amidst like a Christmas tree factory uh, uh-huh. of like you know like a forest of Christmas trees and load and then there were also loads of giant wooden crosses dotted around oh my gosh uh, and and so in, in relation to kind of a I guess an idolizing of a certain notion of like purity in like Swiss mountainside you know like sound of music type mm-hmm. uh, aesthetics then it was like the perfect beginning and then from there it Mexico City is filled with which are markets of secondhand or like yeah like loads and loads of stuff and and we spent a lot of time trawling the markets looking for exactly the right objects that would mean something for each character and 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 like had a had a, a particular importance within the film and and just like building it up from there and ah one of the one of the things that never really was I, I do a lot of drawing as both in within the script writing process but also in in the production design side and and then also for this film I designed an amazing pattern for the curtains of the dormitories, which was a kind of a fence of hands locked in prayer. And then like 
occasionally a few holes in the fence. And it, I mean, I'm always so proud of that design. And it's like, you don't really see it, of course, <laughs> but it's there in the background. <laughs> oh, haunting, haunting. I mean, it's one of the gems of discovery. And, and it's amazing that this camp exists and that you were able to find and build upon it. Um, uh-huh. One of the things that is just so impressive about any film that has more than one protagonist or is more of an ensemble film is wrangling all the characters. Now imagine doing that with a bunch of preteen boys. Yeah. I'd love to talk <laughs> I'd love to talk, Joaquin, about some of the longer shots that you orchestrated. I think yeah. that there's a lot of hype around oneers. And to me, often they feel unearned. But in this film, I feel like there were there every single moment, even in these longer takes where the camera is moving and following around, following the camp around and following and connecting with these different characters, it, it all felt earned and just kept me in the moment and on the edge of my seat. So I'd love to talk about how you wrangled all the kids and yeah. also pulled off some of those extensive shots. Well, that's uh, thank you for the question. You know, one of the things that I really like about the, the, the way this film was done, it was that the directing is kind of invisible in a certain way because uh, the kids are playing so naturally and they are just like beha- behaving in so many random ways that, that actually you don't, you don't realize that there's they're being directed, you know, it just feels really natural. And the way we, I, I always imagine the, the film to be, to have a lot of movement, a lot of noise, a lot of, you know, chaos basically is the, is the right word. So mm-hmm. from the, 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 of course, the initial casting, we were looking for boys that came from similar backgrounds as, as the kids in the film. So, because it, it's, there is these subtleties that are very difficult to explain when you were born in a certain environment and when you were born in another one. So it was very important that these kids understood, you know, more or less what the film was about. Actually, they understood a lot what the film was about because it's what they breathe every day in their lives, you know, as being like from privileged backgrounds from Mexico City. So they, they knew exactly what I was talking about. Uh, but then they didn't know how to act. So so we, we I created together with my casting directors a... Uh, like a whole like program of six, basically it was like six months of ex- extensive castings and trainings. But the interesting thing is that, you know, I never, I never made a, an individual casting in the, in the sense that I never casted one by one, everyone. I casted a bunch of groups of 10 or 15 people. And I started right. by creating like a, you know, improvisation dynamics and in the, watching them and recording them. I started to realize who had convincing power, who was interesting, who was funny, who mm-hmm. was, who, who had, you know, I started to like see the personalities through the improvisation. And I never told the kids that there was going to be a main character, like main characters in the film. They always thought, uh, they understood, they thought, they thought that they were all going to be playing the same, you know, just part of the collective, which is kind of true. But mm-hmm. later on, you know, in the process, I, I, I explained them that some of them would have to, to be a little bit more, uh, let's say, like in front of the camera. But they were already super trained to give their best performance, no matter if they were close to the camera or if they were standing like 20 meters away. So this, uh, this method of 
of like motivating them to give their best, no matter where the position of the camera was, allowed me to create like really, really long improvisations and long shots where I just had to like basically explain whether, where they started, where they had to finish. And in the, in, during that process, I would direct like specifically little things that were happening. And they were so well-trained that they just did it. And it was magic. So my, my task and with my cinematographer was to capture it as if it was happening really, you know, like a, a little bit like a documentary. So like by rolling the camera and just letting the camera roll and see what happens. And it was a beautiful process, really. It was incredible. I'm so impressed when directors and filmmakers are able to capture the magic of being a kid on camera. We recently had Kelly Freeman Craig, who directed Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And she was speaking similarly about casting kids who she knew could just exist in front of the camera and be themselves and take direction, but also to capture that magic that you speak of. Now, as we wrap up here and thinking of our audience that is made up of a ton of emerging filmmakers, folks who may be moving in to make their first feature or maybe even their first short, what advice do you both have for folks who are just getting their start? Well, mine would be, you know, to to basically when working with actors, you know, to to create the trust and the fun and the freedom to let to let them be more than what they wrote in their scripts because very typical beginners problem is that this the, the script lim- it, it feels like a limitation for the characters and actually in this film you can see that actually there were characters written and we just allowed them uh, to grow and to become something else so that would be the advice to kind of like try to open the film to to real life. Let real life be absorbed in the film. That's my advice. Okay. And in addition, I would say, well, writing teams of two or more are an incredible way to build things. And it lets go of a lot of the anxiety of the process of writing, which can be a very lonely journey and creates the conditions for a kind of D&D role play world of testing out ideas and, 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 and bouncing ideas for building a story off each other. And then in addition, I'd say like improvise and be, you know, creative with what you have. And then finally, I think a really important element of screenwriting and, 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 and cinema is to think about, you know, how are you framing this? What are you leaving out and what are you including? You know, what's the angle of the camera and, and how is that helping you tell your story? I think that's a really important part of the movies. <laughs> oh, well, thank you both for joining and for making this film. And I think, Lucy, you just convinced me to finally play D&D. So... <laughs> <laughs> well and listen listeners you can follow and watch the film the hole in the fence across streaming platforms now thank you for listening all right that is this week's podcast you can find me on mastodon because no one has invited me to blue sky yet although i might stay on mastodon even after an invite we'll see you can follow me at lost in graceland and at gghawkins.com I'm at Jason Hellerman on Instagram. DMs open. Dominic figured it out. And on Twitter at Jason Hellerman, same deal.